Hello and welcome to the next episode in our digital download series. I'm Lizzie Williams, I'm a senior associate in the Dispute Resolution Group at Harbottle and Lewis. In this podcast series, we're discussing topical issues in the digital and tech world and giving our experts a on the legal issues they give rise to. In each episode, we will interview some of our colleagues on a tricky tech topic, and today's guest is Mike Jones, an associate in our media and entertainment group specialising in sport. I'll be talking to him about the interaction between tech and sport, in particular the use of technology in elite level sport, the collection of performance data and associated legal issues. So let's get started. Mike, have you come across any innovative and exciting examples of using technology to achieve elite level performance at incremental gains in sport? And if so, are there any particular legal issues which come up frequently in that context? Yeah, I think because elite level sport is obviously such a competitive environment, there's frequently new and interesting things that are being developed or to try and gain that little bit of edge, that little bit of advantage over, over rivals. One example that I recently read about, which I think is really cool, mainly because it's got so many potential benefits, is that Harlequins, who won the Premiership rugby season last year, use these gum shields provided by a company called Protect which has a little chip inside of them. The idea behind them is that they, you'll be able to accurately monitor and provide real-time data relating to every single direct or indirect significant impact that the player takes, particularly to the player's head. Now, Harlequins apparently were only one of the three clubs that used these gum shields last year, and by all accounts, completely revolutionised their season. To give you a bit of context, Harlequins started off pretty poorly. They won their last game at home at the end of August and then didn't win at home in any competition between then and January. They sacked their head of rugby in January and the story goes that from that point on they started to use the data generated by these gum shields and decided to change the way they were training around the data that was being generated. So historically rugby teams, obviously it's quite a macho sport, they would rely on conversations with players to determine workloads and how you're feeling, how's the shoulder, etc, etc. And with the data generated, they're actually able to reduce player workloads based on actual data rather than kind of anecdotal evidence, particularly obviously as I say, macho sport, people don't want to say they're injured because they don't want to miss out playing. And whether this is coincidental or not, I don't know. But from that point on, there was a reduction in the number of soft muscle injuries that the Harlequins players were suffering meant they were able to be playing a bit more. So potentially really interesting performance angle to it because it's generating some really key and interesting data. The other side of this is the player welfare side and rugby and a number of other sports actually have you know serious potential issues bubbling away relating to potential claims from players having suffered repeated brain impacts or injuries throughout their careers. And whilst a chip and a gum shield is clearly not going to stop rugby players smashing into each other with large force, it does give data an insight about the severity of an impact that may not be immediately obvious from viewing a player on the outside or, rely- or relying on a player's to tell you when they have suffered a head injury. And that's really key, apparently, from a medical perspective, because some of these concussions are, they're just not visible. You need to take breaks when you, when you suffer them. I appreciate I've just spoken at great lengths about gum shields, but I also think it's really interesting because this is actually like an incremental gain on top of an incremental gain. So GPS trackers have been widely used in sport to monitor performance levels based on on movement on the pitch and particularly in certain sports they see when athletes are entering what's called the red zone which is effectively a a level of fatigue that means they are more likely to suffer injuries and so these these chips almost build on an extra layer of data which allows medical staff strength and conditioning coaches etc to really get an insight how fatigued a player might be it also probably is worth saying that it's not just elite level sport where the technology is really prolific there's 
recently read about a company called PlayerTech, which sells a device that attaches to a football boot and collects data from the, the movement of the boot. So you can get data on power generated, swerved, distant, moved, and actually the gait of a player. And that's being sold at all levels of the game because at a professional level, this could give real insight to improve players' performance. But at a non-elite level, committed amateurs may be able to get improvements to raise their levels of performance. And clearly, there's going to be a large opportunity for companies want to tap into the, the wallets of committed amateurs on all sports. So yeah, I think I, I know you see it going one way, if I'm honest. Thanks, Mike. And now interrogating the data issues a little more, using the example you just gave of a device attaching to football boots, who owns the data which is gathered about players during matches? That seems to be quite an interesting issue. That is the big question at the moment, because for a long time, no one was really interested in the data that could be generated from elite level sports because statisticians and perhaps some clubs might be interested in it, but everyone else, they didn't really see the market. But as with most things, as soon as people started to clock that there was a value in this data, then more people became interested in owning that data. And we're talking about vast sums here. For example, there's a company called Sports Radar, which a large part of its business is collecting and selling data from sporting events. Maybe not so much a performance level data, but you know, statistics and, and the like. And they recently IPO'd with a market cap of 26 billion US dollars. So it's huge, huge sums. But to go into the question, I guess from an athlete's perspective, they would say they own it. It's their personal data. They've generated it by performing. Why shouldn't they own it? But then for the tech vendor's perspective, that data is hugely important to actually improve the tech to get the feedback they need to make sure it's as accurate as possible. And therefore, they probably think they should own it. Clubs or rights holders who are utilising the data, in certain cases, probably selling that data onto third parties who rely on that data from a commercial angle, they'll be keen to own it and see how they can use it as they see fit. There is potentially quite a lot at stake here. It really wouldn't surprise me if there are some very public ownership disputes relating to this data rising over the next few years so yeah in some way it's, it's just a really complex question and who will own the data in a particular scenario will hugely depend on the contractual situation the context in which the data is collected how it's being exploited it's just not an easy answer unfortunately and also probably just worth adding from a pure personal data perspective when we talk about ownership it's the who is the control of the data rather than the owner because obviously the personal data can only be owned by the individual it's who controls it once it's been collected or generated by the individual that is going to be the key question here thank you and now moving from ownership to exploitation can you talk me through how the data can be exploited and any potential legal issues you've come across associated with that um yeah so i guess from aside from the internal performance exploitation in inverted commas. One of the main ways this data is exploited is through licensing it out to third parties for commercial use. The scope of the licenses are pretty varied. There's obviously compilers of statistics relating to support who can be particularly interested in particular data sets. There's also gambling companies that may be interested in other particular data sets in order to fulfill, create the variety of different betting markets that they offer. And then there's just other commercial entities who incorporate data around sports into their commercial offerings. It is really, really varied. And it's only going to get bigger because rights holders, the people who are collecting this data, or perhaps the people who are hosting the events where this data is collected at, are really clued into how they can segment commercial opportunities to increase the number of, of commercial revenue streams coming into their business. You know, from a sponsorship perspective, Premier League football clubs in particular are very clued in into how to break up their sponsorship markets to ensure that they are getting as many commercial partners as they can. And I think the same will happen from a data perspective. 
I suppose legally there's a lot of the considerations that would come into play with other licensing arrangements are just as important here. As a licensee, you want to ensure that the licensor has the right to grant the license it is granting to you. You would probably want to back that up with appropriate indemnities and warranties to give you some comfort that what you're using, you can use and someone's not going to come after you for infringement. And for a licensor, you want to ensure that their licensee is using the license granted by you within the realms of the license. And if any, they're sticking within the exclusivity parameters that you granted. It goes back to that commercial segmentation point that if you've granted someone the rights in a particular category, you want to make sure that they're not going outside of that. Thanks, that makes sense. So it sounds like the data is not only useful for the athletes and their teams, but it's also very valuable in creating different fan experience. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, whether for better or for worse, and some of it is, I don't think, a unanimous positive experience, it does supplement the fan experience that most fans have been experiencing for many, many years, whether at home or in stadium at the event. Data has allowed for a huge increase in betting markets available to the average fan. Number of corners, number of yellow cards, time of first free kick, time of first throw in, etc. And as a result, there's been a huge explosion of betting advertising and betting sponsorship within sport. Now, we could probably have an entirely separate chat about that topic. Suffice to say that that is one element of the the fan experience that is being slightly being pushed back on by regulators is having a potential negative impact on fans. And you can see this by moves to have a whistle-to-whistle ban on gambling advertising and more recently a move to ban gambling sponsorship from uh, shirt sponsors. That's one side of it. There is a proliferation of data which can supplement the armchair's fan experience by providing more and more data and statistics for them to delve into in a way that gives them a much more in-depth experience. You know, these are undoubtedly enjoyed by a lot of fans you know, certain data sets which are becoming widely accepted as key metrics within sport so there's a thing called expected goal which is an algorithm based statistic which plugs in a load of different data to tell you who should have won a match based on the number of key chances they've had and how good those chances were a few seasons ago that was unheard of now it's used on match of the day every saturday night to give a just a bit more detail to fans watching the sport from an armchair fan experience i think data is being used to really supplement the match day experience but if i'm honest i do think there is so much more that can be done to enhance the match day experience for fans in the stadium and in many ways i think the us is leading the way on that and the uk is lagging behind thank you so if the us is leading the way on that could you give us a few examples on what they're doing over there yeah, of course. One slightly gimmicky but comes immediately to mind is um, the Carolina Panthers launched an AR experience, an augmented reality experience in the stadium that shows their mascot, which is a uh, panther, funnily enough, prowling around the stadium. And the PGA has recently launched a, to coincide with the Ryder Cup, launched a mobile AR app to improve the live fans experience. I think the difference in the UK is that a lot of these top technologies rely on super quick data connections, which are just not really possible in, in a lot of UK stadiums. Even some of the more recently built stadiums still struggle with, with data issues because of the way they were built. They're huge concrete structures that just aren't conducive to good Wi-Fi or data connections. So my experience of going to football stadiums over the years is not being able to receive text messages, let alone experiencing an interesting AR environment within the stadium environment itself. I do hope and I think there is some hope that 5G will really help with this because at its core it's designed to be able to support more devices and once stadium environments can have a multi-layered fan experience off the back of 5G implementation then there are a number of really interesting possibilities.
A good example, I think, of one is a company called SeatServe. So SeatServe is a business. We had a contract for the Tokyo Olympics, obviously, with no fans at the Tokyo Olympics. They weren't able to to really get the benefit of that. Their business is a software offering that enables in-seat food and beverage delivery. As data coverage is so poor in stadiums, tech like that just wouldn't work in the UK at the moment. But you would hope once 5G comes in, it's implemented more into stadium architecture, you get that multi-layered fan experience, then these possibilities start becoming a reality. Although I probably would just add on that, even if data coverage was better, that kind of food or beverage delivery service might not be possible in all sports. Like, for example, football, where it's still prohibited to have an alcoholic drink in view of the pitch. Thank you. And before we finish this episode, I'd like to touch on esports and their digital first nature. Do you think there's anything that traditional sport can learn from esports in terms of the fan experience and utilising data and technology in innovative ways? Yeah, I think I think they can learn a lot. If you go back 18 months ago, you know, March, April 2020, you know, sports properties around the world were being forced to shut up shop. Esports was able to largely continue unhindered, and you know, in fact, a number of sports properties scrambled to put on esports content to fill the gaps those government-enforced shutdowns created. So I think, yeah, a, lo- a lot of sports properties had to learn quickly from mainstream esports and you know, the likes of Dota 2, League of Legends, Fortnite, etc., as to how they could engage fans at home without having an in-stadium experience so whilst i think in you know march april time during the pandemic shutdowns there was mainly sideline esports events which are related to the underlying sport so f1 set up an esports series or utilize its existing esports series i should say to give fans some content of drivers fifa was used a bit more widely by premier league clubs and and, and the like to make sure that the fans were getting content teaching the clubs but i think a lot of lessons would have been learnt from those tournaments, how they were put on, how they engaged with fans outside of a live event environment. And hopefully they'll be taken forward by, by the mainstream traditional sports. I think part of that is integrating technology to enhance the sport as a whole. But I think a large part of it is just being able to generate content outside of the traditional sporting window. You know, your match day in football on a Saturday or Sunday, that keeps people engaged for as long as possible. It certainly helps that esports is a digital first entertainment product, whereas traditional sports have been sometimes slow to adapt to changing environments unless they've actually been forced to, which obviously they they were in March and April last year. Thanks very much, Mike. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much for your time and insight. For further insight, please follow Harbottle and Lewis on Twitter and LinkedIn and join us for our next episode.